So I am a massive fan of the Bible. I love it. I really do. But sometimes I wonder if this book could speak, would it say the same thing? Like if you could ask this Bible a question, how much does Alex really love the Bible? Would it answer you as passionately as I would say to you in public? The thing is, is our relationship with the Bible alters depending on all kinds of things. I made a little graph because I'm a nerd about my relationship with the Bible since I became a Christian. And here it is. It kind of looks a bit like this. Where it starts is um, I didn't grow up going to church whatsoever, but we had the Gideons come into our school to do an assembly about the Bible, and they gave us a little red New Testament and Psalms. And I took that New Testament and Psalms, and I didn't really touch it at all. But when I moved to London when I was 14, for some reason, I took two books with me. I took The Adventure of Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, and I took, um, I took this New Testament and Psalms. And then when I saw the film, The Passion of the Christ, the first thing I reached for in my bookshelf was this tiny little red book, New Testament and Psalms, and I devoured it. And then what you see is a sharp increase as I started going to church, and I was discipled really well by a great pastor who met with me once a week before college, and we would um, go through passages of Scripture, and I would ask him loads of questions, and I was just loving it. I felt like when I first engaged the Scripture, a bit like Lucy in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when she first walks through the wardrobe. She's telling everyone about this wonderful world, and then running back to whatever the normal world is, and says, look, all this stuff. And I was like that. I was so transfixed by this whole new world that opened up to me that I became obsessed with reading the Bible. I had a little black pocket Bible that I had in my back pocket all the time, wherever I went. On a bus, I'd pull it out. In lessons, I'd pull it out, and I was just transfixed by it. But then what you see is a slight dip, and that dip is when I started working for a church. And you might think, well, surely everyone who works for churches is reading their Bible loads. The problem is this became a resource for the programs that I was making, or it became a textbook for the sessions that I was planning for young people and less of a place of devotion. And so it became this kind of resource book that I would kind of, I was still reading it, I was still engaging with it, but it was no longer a place of devotion and passion for me. And then what, what happened is a slight slow increase as I started um, going on the process to being selected to be ordained as a Church of England minister. And because I had to read the Bible then, because people are asking uncomfortable questions about how much I was reading the Bible. And so I started reading it more and more and more. But then what you see is an encouraging increase as I started uh, university for the second time. I did a master in theology because, again, I, I went to a really great uh, uni and they really encouraged the personal reading of Scripture, not just reading books about the Bible. And then there was a slight dip as I became a curate, which is someone who's training to be a vicar, and it, that my job was so hectic that, again, this became a resource rather than a place of devotion. And now it looks very tidy, doesn't it? It looks very tidy, and you, can, you might be able to plot something similar. But really, the reality, it looks a bit more like this, doesn't it? Like, that's kind of more the journey. There were peaks and troughs all along that. There were times of intensity, times of chaos, times where things dipped, times where things really um, exceeded where I thought it was going. But the thing is, if you ask yourself what has changed about how you engage your scripture, I'm sure there's something that will be something to do with your circumstance, something to do with the environment you're in, maybe the geography even, maybe you've left um, the comfort of your youth group or your student group or your home group and you've moved city. Maybe the people around you have changed. Maybe it's the time or the use of time that you have. Maybe you've got married. Maybe you've just got a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe you've got kids and all that stuff can change those things. And maybe your habits have shifted. And so my dream tonight is that over the next uh, little portion of time, I, I hope to stoke the fire inside each one of us 
to renew the idea about why we even engage in Scripture. And if this is your first time tonight to church or any kind of building with a cross in it, then I hope tonight you get a snapshot of why Christians read the Bible. But secondly, I want to give us some advice around how we can maintain a love and a passion for the Bible. And then thirdly, I want to see, I want us to kind of forecast our dreams around what kind of world will we live in as a result of the love of Scripture. That's where we're going to go tonight. So why do we read Scripture? Well, Dave McCullough, who's an American historian, says history is who we are and why we are the way we are. History is who we are and why we are the way we are. Or to put it another way, as an amateur historian says, the Bible, therefore, tells us who God's people are and why, we, why they are the way they are. So the Bible helps us to know who are the people that follow God. And then why are they the way they are? Far more articulately, God says in the book of Isaiah, remember the former things. Those of long ago, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times and what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. And so one of the most important reasons we read the Bible is to learn our collective history as God's people. And sometimes we stray or we lose perspective or we lack faith or we trip up simply because we've gotten out of the habit of remembering, of remembering what is so important about following God. Remembering was so important for the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament that, that they had literal physical reminders, some of them very intimate, like circumcision, keeping sideburns long, having a tasseled scarf around shoulders, wearing a box on your forehead and on your hands as you pray. Physical reminders of who God is in the moment, of the story that God has brought us on. And we read scripture to remember who it is we serve. Ultimately, if you follow Jesus, we don't worship a God of our own making like the world does. We don't worship a popularized Jesus who's just light and fluffy and super cool, man. We worship the God of the Bible, the one whom has been made known to us through the Jesus of the Scriptures. It's on him we put our trust. And like trust in everyday relationships, it waxes and wanes based on primarily proximity. You trust in him and that trust will wax or wane, will get more intense or less intense as you become less proximate to him. I remember for three years, my wife and I, when we were dating, we were long distance. She was in uni in Nottingham and I was in, I was in London. And it was one of the hardest times of our relationship because trust started to wane because we weren't proximate to one another. And at the time, I was running gigs in northwest London, and I used to send her selfies of all the fun nights I was having with some uh, pretty cool musicians. And, um, and she used to get super annoyed and super frustrated and think, what's he up to hanging out of all these semi-famous celebrities? And then, but then the minute we hung out and we got together and I'd get up on the National Express and go to Nottingham, it, that would all disappear because suddenly trust became proximate. Our proximity encouraged trust. And it may be that you're in a great place at the moment with the Lord and with life and, and you've got disciplines and structure around that stuff and, and for you it feels like peacetime. But it's in peacetime where we have to build rhythms 
So that when chaos comes, we have natural reflexes that we've developed for those moments. Laura and I were driving somewhere the other day, and we were reflecting on the worst summer of my life, which was a few summers ago, not, not too long ago, about five years ago, four or five years ago, where someone really close to me tried to take their own life. A best mate of mine died in a car accident, and Laura's granddad, who I know you're not allowed favorites, but he was definitely my favorite grandparent of hers, um, he died, and to top it off, my dog died, Millie, the beautiful little staffy that was like my pride and joy, all died, all, the, all those things happened in the space of about three weeks. And I was like, God, what are you doing? What's happening in this moment? And it's in those moments, you don't have the emotional energy to start to build new habits. In those moments, you don't, don't suddenly reach for a reading plan. You don't suddenly reach out to your mate and say, hey, it'd be great if we could be accountability partners right now. You don't suddenly go, you know what, I'm going to press into worship right now. In those moments, you don't have the emotional space to do that. But I was so thankful that I had a, a small slither of a rhythm, which is I get up early and I read a, a verse of scripture and ask God to speak to me. That was it. But actually, it was in those moments that I felt words jump out at me from the pages of the Bible that hit me in the face with his love. Words like, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In that moment, I needed that. It's exactly what I needed. Or when Jesus says to his disciples, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. I needed a hope to hold on to in those moments. Or when Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I'm like, yeah, I need to see that glory because right now my life doesn't feel that glorious. Do not wait for the tide to rise before you build the boat. Don't wait for the tide to rise before you build the boat. Build those rhythms so that in wartime, when chaos comes, when the proverbial hits the fan, your natural reflexes will keep you afloat. And so we don't just read the Bible to remember, but we also read it to hear his voice. How many adverts do you think you see a day? Anyone can shout out. How many adverts do you reckon you see a day? Just shout out a number that you might. 10 adverts a day. Go on. Anyone else? How many adverts do you reckon you might see in a day? A thousand. That's a good guess. Anyone? Anyone want to up that thousand? Apparently, media companies suggest that we see around 10,000 adverts per day. Whoa. But only. Luckily, only a quarter of them will be relevant to you in your specific place, which means you will engage with about 2,500 adverts a day. Now, they're not all video adverts. Some of them are just as you walk past the shop and you see something in a window. But you see those things. Your brain apparently makes, on average, 35,000 decisions each day. Now, some of those subconscious decisions. Some of those are active. Some of those, should I go to church or not? Some of those, who should I date? Like, but some of them are just, should I tie my laces or not? Like, some of them are subconscious, but we make about 35,000 decisions a day. And on Netflix, there are currently 6,621 titles to choose from. Who's watched them all? I mean, I know a few of you have. And then Domino's Pizza, this is a kicker, presents a possible 34 million combinations of pizza if you go by their basic menu. 34 million possible combinations you can have at Domino's Pizza. And still, Texas barbecue is easily the best, isn't it? Who's Texas barbecue? Yeah, 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 that barbecue sauce, it is heavenly. 
But when you decide between all those voices and choices, how can you possibly find out what is God's will for you or just the best version of you on any given day? Well, Jesus says this, my sheep, as in us, we listen to his voice. I know them, Jesus says, and they follow me. We need to listen to his voice and the way we can hear his voice, but above all the noise, all the distraction, is the discipline of picking up this book, learning his accent, hearing his cadence, the way he speaks, and the way he thinks. Did you know that in the Jewish alternative to Sunday schools, which don't happen on Sunday, uh, neither happen in school, they are less bothered with kids memorizing stories about God or memory verses, but they are more concerned with kids learning about God's character. Because stories in isolation, they impress and they do build faith. But when you read the whole counsel of scripture, not just memory verses and old favorites, you start to learn his character, his ways, his heart. We pick up our Bibles and suddenly just open it to Habakkuk. We're going to learn something different to when we just pick it up and read Matthew again for the 45th time. We're going to learn something new about his character and his ways and the way God moves and he speaks. When we engage with this, We are not just picking up an old textbook to learn from for the next exam, but we're picking up the living word of God. For the word of God is living and active, the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It's not just a book. Or as it says in 2 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now, I want to be equipped for every good work. The Bible is God's word for us. And as we read scripture, we pick up his nuances And we start to make decisions based on what scripture says rather than what the world suggests. Our thinking stops from being from a place of, I'm facing this scenario, what does the Bible think? And moves to, what does the Bible think about how I should live and then how do I get there? Now I'm sure in your work or in your studies, you you might say something like, oh, if I was given a pound for every time someone says dot, 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 or someone does dot, dot, dot. Has everyone got something like that in their sphere, right? As a pastor, I'll let you into a little secret. If I was given a pound for every time someone says to me, it's been so long since God last spoke to me. Happens nearly every time I have it. And, and because I'm a nice pastor, we'll then chat a little bit. I might pray for you. And then we'll, we'll kind of imagine what God might be saying. But there's everything inside of me is wanting to scream, pick it up. Pick it up. He has spoken. He has spoken 757,439 words in the NIV. He has spoken those words. And yet I get it. Some of those words are words like abomination or sacrifice or wrath. But God continues to teach us when he uses the whole counsel of scripture. If our lives are like a ship, then the Bible are our sails. And as Bede once said, unfurl the sails and let God steer us where he will. Unfurl them. Let God lead us by his word. The third reason we read the Bible is to discern the times. Bede wrote in 600 and something AD, 
all the ways of this world are as fickle and unstable as a sudden storm at sea. Have the times changed? No. That could have been written today, right? Doesn't it feel like we live in fickle times? Fickle and unstable, so changing. Feels like things move so, so much. You know, it's become an Instagram trend, doesn't it, where, um, it might be on TikTok, I have no idea, but where someone says, oh, I'm 35 now. If I went back 35 years from the day of my birth, we'd be in the 1950s, right? And that kind of thing. And so that, that's my case. I'm 35 now. So if you track that back from 88, what's 88 minus 35? Any quick maths? 53, brilliant. So like that's the equivalent of distance between now and in the 50, 1950s. Be a different style of church in the 1950s, I'm sure. I'll be listening to different music in the 1950s. I'll be dancing in a different kind of way in the 1950s. I'll be interested in different things in the 1950s. The world has changed. But the thing that hasn't changed is how quickly the world changes, right? There's a really interesting part in, in Chronicles where King David is gathering an army together at a place called Hebron. And he distinguishes amongst his soldiers the sons of a guy called Issachar because they have an unusual gift. And this is what it says in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Of the sons of Issachar who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, their chiefs were 200 and all their brethren were at their command. Their understanding of the times made known to the king that the sons of Issachar knew what Israel ought to do. This gift of discernment is so valuable in times of uncertainty. Most of us are so preoccupied by our personal daily lives, we cannot properly discern the times. And then fast forward to Jesus. Jesus was critical of his generation for their inability to discern the times. He says to the multitudes, whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say a shower is coming and so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say there will be hot weather and there it is, hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern the times? So why did Jesus rebuke them? Mostly because they were so steeped in their culture and their religious tradition that they missed what was right in front of them. The Messiah they had read and heard spoken about in the synagogue all their lives was with them. And yet they could not discern the times. Sure, they could discern natural things with precision and accuracy, but they missed the spiritual shift that was right in front of their noses. We might be able to speak the cultural lingo, but are we able to see the spiritual shift that's happening right in front of our noses? We might know exactly what books to put on our Instagrams so that people know that we think in a way that is, um, that is right and correct with today's current trends, but are we missing the spiritual shift that is right in front of our noses? We might know the right things to retweet and to resend out and to repost, but are we missing the spiritual shift that's happening right in front of our noses? And then Paul goes on, speaking to that same generation about knowing the times. The sons of Issachar had an understanding of the times. Jesus rebuked his generation for not discerning the times. And then Paul um, admonishes us to know the times in Romans. He says this, and do this knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of our sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Therefore let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, but in strife and envy. Be put on the, 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. When God does a new thing, long-standing tradition becomes a barrier because our eyes are fixed on what was so, what, so that what is cannot be clearly seen. During these uncertain times, let us look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we do this, the spirit of truth will give us understanding of the times. So we read the Bible to remember our history. We read the Bible to hear his voice. We read the Bible to discern our current times. But how do we maintain a love of Scripture? Now, some of the Penny Lane staff team, they like to play Alex Raymond's sermon bingo, that when I speak, they're like, there's certain phrases that I might say, and they're like kind of checking them off on their, um, uh, and they all laugh about it in the office. Um, and so I'm just going to say that because I'm about to mention something that I mentioned a fair bit. Um, that's because I'm a middle-aged man, and any passions we have, we talk about. Uh, and so recently, uh, past couple of years, I've really enjoyed the gym. Um, cheers. And... Um, and I was thinking about that this week, and I think there are disciplines that I've picked up over the past couple of years that are really helpful for other disciplines, including scripture. And the first thing is this, that if someone is struggling with their workout and they're, they're feeling they're, they're kind of on a plateau or spiraling down, then a physical instructor, a PT might say something like, well, you can vary the workout. You can switch it up. And you can switch it up in all kinds of things. As we walk out of our gym, there's this slogan that says, the only bad workout is one you didn't do, Right? And so we can vary the workout. We can vary the workout in all kinds of ways. But what I want to encourage you to do today, if you feel like you're plateauing or you feel like you've spiraled down, to vary the workout when it comes to Scripture. You know Billy Graham, the famous preacher, he was once asked, what's the best translation of Scripture? And he replied, the one you're currently reading. There's no like perfect translation. If, if at the moment you, you just need something new to spark it up, switch translation, switch it up. Find a reading plan. Find a new supplementary voice that helps that. When Bede was dying, he was asked, what book should I read if I had just seven days? And immediately he replied, read the book of John. And then he said, in fact, I've written a plan for you, John, in seven days. And he wrote a whole commentary on it. But at the end of one of his books on church history, he said this, it's a prayer. I beseech you, good Jesus, that to whom you have graciously granted sweetly to drink in the words of knowledge, you will also vouchsafe in your loving kindness that he may one day come to you, the fountain of all wisdom, and appear forever before your face. Now the dream is this, that one day when we encounter this book, we regard it as something that we've been granted sweetly to drink in the words of knowledge, that one day when we come face to face with the fountain of all wisdom, we experience its loving kindness in all its fullness. And so if we're to drink in the words of this knowledge as much as possible, sometimes we just need to vary the workout. We need to change the supplementary voices. And here's a few that I'd recommend that I listen to on a pretty regular basis. There's a few podcasts um, that I just find super helpful. Bema is an amazing podcast. It follows two people as they're engaging with Scripture together in conversation. And so the best way to, if you want to listen to that, is you scroll down to episode one and start with Genesis and just walk your way through with those guys as you're going through that. I'm loving the upper room guys at the moment, how they've birthed a church out of a place of prayer and worship. I find it incredibly aspirational and inspirational for my own ministry here. The Craig Rochelle podcast I love for any kind of leadership stuff. And if, you're, if you consider yourself a leader in any way, it's a definite must listen to. 
And the guys at Mosaic and Southeast Christian are some of the best preachers I think I've ever heard. So switch it up. Change it up. It's all right. You don't have to go with a Bible that you grew up reading. You can switch it up. Another thing about the gym that's super important, which is really good news for most of us, is rest periods. It's really important between sets or reps or between days to have a decent rest period. And I want to encourage you, again, if you're plateauing in your reading of Scripture or you're spiraling, to incorporate proper space as you're engaging with Scripture. A nerd on the internet wrote this about rest. Um, I can't remember his name, so. Uh, It says this, Every time you work out, you create microscopic tears in your muscle tissues. And when you rest, your muscles start to heal and grow back stronger, meaning you'll be able to do the same workout with less effort in the future. The same workout with less effort in the future. The thing is this, that when you engage with the Word of God, you should expect it to challenge you. You should expect it to stretch you. You should expect it to convict you in some ways, unless anyone in this room is perfect. Have we got anyone present? You should expect it to shape you and to do some work in you if you're engaging with the Word of God. To lead you somewhere new, you need to allow room for that shift in you. Now, I'm a big fan of a blitz through the Bible every now and then. You know, a Bible in one year is great, or a Bible through 40 days, always great. It gives us an overarching view of kind of where things fall in the, in the story of the Bible. But if we're to have a discipline, if we're to be like the, the one described in Psalm 1, we have to allow rest. Psalm 1 says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step with wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, Or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on this law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. I'm quite a fast reader, but it's difficult to even read that psalm quickly. There's a pace to that stuff, isn't there? Trees don't grow overnight. Rivers don't form overnight fruit doesn't burst out overnight meditation there's no such thing as speed meditation it doesn't work like that there's a pace to this stuff allowing God to have have space in your life as you read and engage with scripture allowing him to move and to help these things so that your spiritual muscles grow stronger and you're not just blitzing through it And finally, my final reflection of the gym is working with others. Now, the best workouts I ever do involve other people. I ran my best 10K last week, thank you very much, because I ran with people who are both six foot five, and I am me, and so I had to keep up with them because I'm a man, and and therefore I ran my best 10K. Um, But I've got a new gym buddy. I used to have a gym buddy, but he got a personal trainer, and so he no longer wants to go with me to the gym because I hold him back. But I now have a new gym buddy, which is my wife, Laura. I know, she got membership recently, and we, we do workouts together. She might lift kind of lighter weights or less reps, um, but she's getting there. Um, but I absolutely love it, partly because I can impress my wife on a regular basis, and she gets excited, because she, she's never been to a gym before. She's got no idea what's going on. Um, she's like, wow, you're so strong, Alex. <laughs> I know. But also, what's really good about it is having a spotter in the gym helps you improve form, keeps you accountable, and actually gives you a realistic view on how much you should or shouldn't lift. You've got to remember this, that reading the Bible was never meant to be a solitary endeavor. 
Remember that at the time of Jesus, only the extremely wealthy had one of the books or maybe a couple of the books of the Old Testament personally in their home. Most people would only encounter scripture when they went to synagogue and someone who was educated read it over them. That's how most people engage with scripture. So their discipleship meant they had to chat about it as they were leaving the synagogue with their mates. Even at the time of Jesus' disciples, we're told they went back to the synagogue time and time. They weren't walking around with their New Testament in their back pockets. They were still only engaging with the Old Testament. And they were only engaging with that communally. And yet for us, it's become a solitary endeavor where it's us with a flat white, judging by your Instagrams, and, and you're just kind of sitting there thinking, Lord, you need to help me. What does this all mean? It was never meant to be a solitary endeavor. Do you know the best thing you could ever do in any church, whether it's this one or another church, that will feed you for a lifetime is asking one or two other people to say, will you meet with me and can we read scripture together and can we pray together? There's nothing deeper when it comes to discipleship than that. Nothing deeper. That's the model that Jesus gives. It's the model that's gone throughout generations and it's even why Bede wrote all this stuff in community in a monastery. The only way we can do discipleship is with one another. It just takes a bit of stamping on our pride and, and saying, you know what, I don't know all the answers. The best thing you could possibly do is asking one or two others to meet up with you regularly and say, can we go through the same book together? Can we bring some questions and can we pray with one another? And so what are the results of this kind of love for scripture? When Jesus describes the wise and foolish builders, he says this, but everyone who hears these words of mine does not put them into practice and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the wind blew and beat against the house and it fell with a great crash. So firstly, there is a promise that if we live this kind of life, if we're engaged with scripture regularly and attempting to do what it does, what it says, then we'll be building our life on solid foundations and I think that's a pretty compelling reason for picking it up the thing is I've got loads of friends and loads I mean I don't have loads of friends one or two um, I've got a quite big family though who don't know Jesus and I know for sure that their life is not built on solid foundations and as I'm raising our kids trying to lead our church healthily trying to be a good friend trying to be a good husband trying to be a good father I need solid foundations in my life. I need it. And of, of course, none of us are perfect. We're going to have subsidence and other architectural problems with our spiritual homes. But Jesus says if we just read it and try and do what it does, what it says, then we'll find we'll build it, be building on solid foundations. So not only will we be building a life on solid foundations, but we'll also be preparing ourselves for the opportunities that arise one of the greatest stories that, um, that exemplifies this is found in Acts 8. And I love this. Philip, one of um, the apostles, is uh, coming out away from Jerusalem. And he sees a chariot holding an Ethiopian eunuch who has gone to Jerusalem to present uh, an act of worship on behalf of the queen of Ethiopia. And he hears him, he overhears him reading from the, the Torah, reading from the book of Isaiah even. Then Philip, it says, ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. So he's very wealthy. He had one of these in his chariot. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip said. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And this is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. 
He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants, for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. See what Philip did? He used a tiny bit that the eunuch had read to share the good news of Jesus. Now I want to ask you a real quick question. Who here has lived the majority of their life in the north? Okay, good few of you. Um, I don't know if you know this, but um, so I've lived in, this is my 17th house that I've lived in since I've been alive, um, and uh, I think it's like the sixth or seventh town or city that I've lived in, and Liverpool is by far the easiest city to talk about Jesus that I've ever encountered in the UK. Like, hands down, like, so, so easy. Now, there's lots of theories about this. It, some people say, well, 50% of Scouskers can trace their heritage back to Ireland, and so it still feels quite Christian. A lot of the high schools in the city are Christian schools, and so most Scouts have been to some kind of Christian form of education. It might be the prominence of both the cathedrals in the city. It might be that even Jurgen Klopp can say very openly that he's a Christian. It might be that members of Liverpool and Everton have started church in the city. All that kind of thing means that actually uh, the atmosphere of speaking about Jesus, I find personally extremely simple, extremely simple compared to other cities and areas I've lived in. Now again, for the Alex Raymond bingo players, um, I do jiu-jitsu a couple of times a week. Um, <laughs> cheers. Um, but this kind of thing happens all the time. Have you noticed this? I think so many people are asking the simple question, how can I unless someone explains it to me? I think our city is asking that. That they're, simply, they're asking the questions, but they don't know until someone explains it to them. The other day when I was in jiu-jitsu, I was getting changed after, and I'd just been um, beating someone up, <laughs> or they're probably beating me up. And, um, and the guy said to me, um, Alex, uh, you go to church, right? I was like, yep. And he said, oh, I was just thinking the other day about the sign above Jesus when he gets crucified, Inri, right? You've seen that before? And it means uh, king of the Jews. And then he said to me, why was he called the king of the Jews when actually the Jews wanted him to be crucified? I said, oh, actually, well, it was a mockery from the Romans. You know, that's why they gave him a crown of thorns and a purple robe. Um, and he was like, you know what? I went to Catholic school growing up, and I had to go to Mass all the time, and I just never knew that. And time and time again, it happens on an almost weekly basis where someone will ask some kind of question like that. And some, some of them are bizarre, and some of them are a bit more um, profound. But I think our, our city is crying out, asking this question, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? So we have a mandate as followers of the word, as people who follow Jesus, as disciples of his word. We have a responsibility that we read it so we become ready for the opportunities that when people say to us, how can we know unless someone explains it to them, then we can say, you know what? Either I might not know the answer. I might be able to Google it for you though. Or, you know, I've got a great church. Might be able to bring some, I might be able to bring you to it. But you might also have the answer. Philip used that tiny bit from Isaiah that the eunuch had to then share the entire good news of Jesus Christ. And that's what we have to remember when we pick this up. We aren't picking up a textbook or a history book, or an exam piece, or a chore, or an awkward inconvenience of the Christian faith. When we pick this up, we are encountering Jesus, 
the one who every word is pointing towards, the word enfleshed, the word of life. He says in John 5, 39, you can study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life, but these are the very scriptures that testify about me, Jesus says, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And so we have a choice. Do we become members of the History Club of Jesus? We might attend the History Club, which meets on a Sunday. We might read the History Book every now and then. Or do we want to encounter the living, risen Jesus in his word as we meet together and as we leave this place with one or two others and say, let's go on this journey, encountering this stuff together. Let's engage with Jesus once again by his word. Have confidence that we can build on solid foundations that these words give life and life in all its fullness. And yes, there are odd bits and we can chat about those over coffee. I'll occasionally do a sermon series on them if you want. But let's be students of this book in these fickle and changing times. And so I wanna pray for a few people tonight. We're a zero shame culture. So I wanna pray Maybe if you just haven't read it for a long time. And there might be some trauma related to that, and I get that. There might have been a certain time in your life where something rough has happened, and you know what, you're like, you know what, it hasn't given me the answer I need. I'm putting it to one side. I'd much rather not even engage with it. And we want to pray. We want to pray that you're healed by that. We want to pray that you feel reconciled to engage with Jesus by his words again. We also want to pray for those who just haven't heard the voice of Jesus in your reading of Scripture before. Actually, it feels far too distant. It feels like you're reading something that's from a bygone time and you haven't actually heard the words being spoken directly to your heart. I want to pray for you. And then particularly tonight, I just felt that, um, we, you know, we sung that song, uh, O Rock of Ages, and there's that line, um, I may not face Goliath, but I've got my own giants. And I wonder tonight whether a few of us are just circumstances against us. And tonight, all you've heard is Alex give me another to-do thing, and that's not what this is about. We're a people of grace. We want to walk alongside one another and fight the battles together.